So I want you to take your Bibles today and I want you to turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 20 was all about the resurrection. John chapter 21 is all about restoration. What do Moses, David, and Peter have in common? All of them had major failures in their lives, but through the restoring power of God, he used them again for his glory and for his kingdom advancement. Now, if you remember, Moses as a young man killed an Egyptian man who had been um, uh, uh, giving uh, an Israeli a very tough time. And when Pharaoh found out, Moses, out of great fear and, and to save his own hide, went to the wilderness. But God wasn't through with him. And then you remember David. David had an affair with Bathsheba, and he arranged to have Bathsheba's husband murdered. And yet God forgave him and moved forward with him and restored him and used him in an amazing way. And then Peter who is the subject of our sermon today, Peter denied his Lord three times, three times, and yet God used him. So I want us to pick up our story today in, in chapter 21, beginning with verse 1. The Bible says, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana of Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. So they went out and got into the boat and that night, like so many fishermen in this church, they caught nothing. If Sam Nichols were here this morning, he's on vacation, I, I would have pointed Sam out. So Peter and the six other disciples had gone to Galilee. And I honestly believe they went to Galilee in obedience to the Lord's command. Because in Matthew 26, 32, Jesus said to them, after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Now, before Jesus was crucified, Jesus had told them that he would be resurrected from the dead on the third day. And yet, because of sheer fear and, and, uh, and uh, being afraid that they would be themselves be executed, when Jesus had been laid in the tomb three days afterward, they didn't bother to go to the tomb to check and see if he really was resurrected from the dead. And they wouldn't make that mistake again. Jesus said, go before me to Galilee and I'll meet you there. So here they are in Galilee and they were waiting for Jesus to come. By the way, we're waiting for Jesus to come today, aren't we? He may come today. The rapture of the church could be today. Are you ready to meet Jesus? That's the question. Well, while they were waiting, they decided to go fishing. Now, there's no, nothing sinful about going fishing, but most, if not all of these guys, were professional fishermen before Jesus called them to follow him. So they fished all night, and they caught nothing. 
Look at verses four to six. But when the day was now breaking, so it was dawn, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. So it was dawn, and the disciples could see that someone was on the beach, but they couldn't make out who it was. I mean, it was dawn. The, the light was poor, and they were 100 yards away from this individual on the beach. And, and this individual, this man said to them, hey, boys, you don't have any fish, do you? So evidently, he assumed that they were poor fishermen. And, and they revealed their lack of success. They said, no, we haven't caught a single fish. And this individual said to them, cast your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. Now, most fishermen do not like to take advice from strangers, especially professional fishermen. Yet we find in this story that, that the man on the beach had such a commanding voice that they followed his advice and they took their nets from the left side of the boat Seven and a half feet to the other side of the boat, they cast their nets into the water. And don't you know what happened? They caught a net full of fish. And they were blown away by the fact that just moving their nets from the left-hand side of the boat to the right-hand side of the boat enabled them to get, catch all of these fish. Who was that man on the beach. Well, verses seven and eight, look at it. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat for they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. Now, this whole scenario reminded John of something that had happened about three years earlier. Three years earlier, there at the same Sea of Galilee, Jesus went to one of these fishermen, probably Peter, and said to him, hey, can I borrow your boat? And Jesus said, sure. So Peter put Jesus in the boat and, and rode out a little bit into the Sea of Galilee and Jesus turned that boat into a floating pulpit and he preached a message from God to the people who had gathered on the shore. And after he had said the final amen, Jesus said to Peter and the fishermen with him, hey, go out into the deep. Now, fishermen know that you don't catch fish in the daytime there in, in Galilee. You catch fish at night. But it's broad daylight. Jesus said, go into the deep and you'll catch fish. And sure enough, they did. They let their nets down and they caught so many fish that their nets began to break. And it hit John. Hey, I know who that is. Hey, Peter, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And Peter began to throw on his outer garment and he was not going to wait on the boat. 
He was not going to wait to drag those fish to the shore. He, he dove into the water and began to swim the 100 yards to the shore because he wanted to be with Jesus. You know what's interesting? Three years earlier when they caught the fish and, and, and Peter realized that somebody special was in his boat, you know what he said to Jesus? He said, Lord, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. But here, three years later, after the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Son of God, Peter can't wait to get to Jesus. So he swims to shore. Look at verses 9 through 11. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. So Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Somebody in that group decided they're going to count the fish. And they counted down to the very last one, 153 fish. Not 152, not 154, but 153. Not small fish, but large fish. These were fishermen, folks. Now, that is an amazing thing in and of itself. And even though there were so many fish, the net was not torn. Now, the only other time that a charcoal fire appears in the New Testament is in John chapter 18. In John chapter 18, verse 18, the Bible says, Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. Now you say, what's the big deal here? Well, Jesus is being tried before Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is trumping up some charges against Jesus because he wants Jesus dead. And Peter's outside. And he's with the slaves and the others. And, and they're warming themselves by a, what kind of fire? A charcoal fire. Peter denied his Lord by that charcoal fire. And I'm telling you, when Peter saw that charcoal fire that Jesus had built there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, I, I'm sure it, it triggered a memory in his mind. And he remembered that the last time he had seen a charcoal fire, he had denied his Lord three times. Don't you imagine he was convicted? Don't you imagine the accuser of the brethren? Satan himself was lowering the boom on Peter because of his failure. Look at verses 12 to 14. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Can't you just smell the bread on that charcoal fire? 
Can't you just hear the, the sizzling of the fish? I mean, these guys had worked all night. They were tired and they were hungry. And Jesus, the Son of God, the risen Savior, had built a charcoal fire and had prepared breakfast for these disciples. You know, there, there are three invitations that really stick out in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, verse 39, Andrew, Peter's brother, and another of the disciples of John the Baptist heard John the Baptist says, there goes the lamb, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, come and you will see. And they came and, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. So the first invitation here is come and see. And I think the Lord may be offering that invitation to some of you today. You're wondering who Jesus is. You're wondering if he really can make a big difference in your life. You're wondering if he can save your soul, forgive your sins, and give you the gift of eternal life. Come and see. Jesus said, come and see. And then in John 7, 37, Jesus presents himself as a living water, and he says, come and drink. So the Bible says there in John 7, 37, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And there are many of you listening by live stream here in the, in the service today in the congregation, and you're thirsty. You're thirsty for something, and you've tried everything the world has to offer, and you're still thirsty. And I'm telling you on the authority of God's word that Jesus, the Son of God, can quench your thirst like no one else. So Jesus is inviting you today. Come to Jesus and drink. Receive the living water and have your thirst quenched, not only for this life, but for the next life. And then there's the third invitation right here in our text today, where Jesus says to the disciples, come and eat. Now, in a Jewish culture, you've got to understand, when, when a Jew invited you to come and eat, he's inviting you to have fellowship with him. There was no fast food restaurants in the first century. Food had to be prepared. It, had, it took a while, and, and in order for you to, to be a part of someone's meal, you had to fellowship with him. You had to spend time with them. And it's amazing that Jesus, in his resurrection glory, was actively providing for the needs of his disciples. Can I tell you, that is a biblical principle that still holds true today. Jesus is still providing for the needs of his disciples. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Have you repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I hope and pray that you have. I hope and pray that every senior has done that. I hope and pray that every child that's of age has done that. I hope and pray that every adult within the sound of my voice ha has received Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord, I'll tell you, if you have, you can have communion with him. You can have fellowship with him. And he promises to meet the deepest needs of your life.
In Philippians 4.19, Paul wrote these words. And my God will supply all your needs. How How many of your needs? All your needs, not your wants, but your needs, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You can have absolute confidence that the risen and glorified Christ wants to have fellowship with everyone who has believed and he wants to meet the deepest needs of your life. Now let's look at verses 15 to 17, which is a a, a very important part of this whole scenario that we're looking at today. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd, my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, the first thing we notice about this dialogue that went on between Jesus and Peter is that Jesus called Peter Simon, son of John. Now, this is a name that Peter used before Jesus renamed him. In fact, the word Simon literally means a pebble, a pebble. This is something that is light, unstable, and totally insignificant, a pebble. But Jesus met Peter Early on in John 1:42, the Bible says that Andrew brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You're, you're the pebble, but you shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. The word Cephas or Peter means a rock, a rock, not a pebble, a rock. And it refers to something solid, strong, and significant. Now, when Jesus used this name, it was like he was forcing Peter to decide who he was going to be. Peter, are you going to be Simon, a pebble, weak and unstable? Or are you going to be Peter, a rock, significant, strong, and solid? What's it going to be for you, Peter? This was such a crucial moment in Peter's life because you see, anytime you fail the Lord, there has to be a moment where you have to deal with your failure. That's exactly what Jesus was doing with Peter here in our story today. Now keep in mind that the resurrected Lord had already had a private meeting with Peter. But here he's having a public meeting with Peter. You say, why? Because Peter had denied the Lord three times publicly. 
And Jesus is putting him in a position where he needs to affirm his belief in Jesus, his love for Jesus three times publicly. And Jesus said, do you love me more than these? Now that's interesting. He's not saying, do you love me more than these and pointing to the net and the boat and the fish. He's pointing to what Peter had said before Jesus was crucified. See, we'll never understand what Jesus meant by do you love me more than these until we read Matthew chapter 26, verse 31 to 35. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee but Peter said to him, look, look what Peter said. Peter was full of himself. Peter was one of those guys you'd like to, to buy for what he's worth and sell him for what he thinks he's worth. Then Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, and you know what he's doing, he's pointing to the other 11 disciples, right? All these guys may fail you, but I will never fall away. I won't fail you. I'll be here. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. Peter really thought that he loved the Lord more than these other disciples did. And he even boasted that he would die for Jesus. But when the pressure was on, Peter failed miserably. He denied his Lord three times. So Jesus confronted him three times. Peter, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter responded by leaning on Jesus' omniscience. Three different times he said, Lord, you know. You know. And then the last time he said, you know all things. Now, it's such a blessing to be able to, for us today to lean on the Lord's omniscience when we fail. Have you ever failed Jesus? I have. I've failed him big time and I've failed him in small ways. I don't think there's a single believer alive on the, on the planet today who could say, I have never failed Jesus. If you do, you've got the Peter syndrome. And Jesus is going to clear that up for you one day. I promise you that. So why is it so important to just appeal to the Lord's omniscience when it comes to this matter of loving him? First, God knows the worst about us, and he loves us anyway. Isn't that neat? If God did not know all things, if he were not omniscient, we might fear that someday we would do something that would startle God and cause him to say, oh, look at that horrible sin Chuck just committed. I didn't know that was in him. How terrible. That changes everything. I won't have anything to do with Chuck ever again. But God knows all things. The Bible teaches that he knows the worst part of Chuck. And yet he loves me anyway. 
The Bible said, nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an incredible blessing it is to know that our Savior is omniscient. And he knows the worst about us, but he also knows the best about us. He knows what's good about us. Jesus knew Peter's heart. He knew Peter's potential. He knew that Peter loved him. He just needed for Peter to affirm it. He needed Peter to see it and to move past his failure. So Peter appealed to the Lord's knowledge. It's like Peter said to him, Lord, despite my bitter failure, I love you. You know that I love you. Don't miss this now. Don't miss it. Three different times, Jesus recommissioned Peter. He restored him. He recommissioned him. He put him back into service for the kingdom. He said, tend my lambs. He said, shepherd my sheep. He said, tend my sheep. And Peter obeyed his Lord. He walked away from this moment on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, a different man, restored by Jesus. Look at verses 18 and 19. Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Literally, keep on following me. So Jesus wanted Peter to know how he would die. Now now when Jesus said, when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands. That, that is a reference to crucifixion. And according to tradition, Peter was crucified in Rome by Nero as an old man. And when it came time for him to be crucified, according to tradition, Peter said, I am not worthy to die like my Lord. Crucify me upside down. I'll tell you, Peter followed Jesus for the rest of his life. He did not let that failure sideline him forever. And then Jesus knew when he would die. He said, you're going to die when you're old. Now think about this. In um, Acts chapter 12, there's a story about Jesus being uh, Peter being arrested uh, along with James, and he had... They had James executed, and Peter was supposed to be executed the next day. And the Bible tells us in chapter 12 that as a middle-aged man, Peter was sound asleep when he was going to be executed the next day. Have you ever wondered how in the world you can sleep when you know you're going to die the next day? I'll tell you how, because you know that you're not going to die the next day because Jesus said you're going to die as an old man, not as a middle-aged man. Man, that is awesome. So Jesus knew how he would die, he knew when he would die, and he knew what he would do. Jesus said, keep on following me, and Peter kept on following Jesus for the rest of his life. 
Look in verses 20 and 20 through 23. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was John following them. The one who also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You know what Jesus said to Peter? Peter said, okay, you've told me how, what's going to happen in my life, how my life is going to end, but what's going to happen in John's life? You know what Jesus told Peter? In modern vernacular, he said, mind your own business. I tell you, when we start sticking our nose in other people's business, it never turns out good, does it? And Jesus said, Peter, I'm going to do with John what I want to do, and I'm going to do with you what I want to do. And you've got to accept the fact that you're not in control of these situations. I am. I am Jesus. I am the Lord. I am the master. I'm in control of everything. Well, we all know what it's like to fail Jesus, don't we? Satan is the accuser of the believer. And he reminds us about our failures. He reminds us of that angry outburst that we had when we hurt somebody that we love. He reminds about that convenient abortion that we got as a teenager or as a young adult. He reminds us about an immoral relationship we were involved in early in our lives or reminds us about our missed opportunity to witness to someone who has since stepped into eternity. We wish we could go back. We wish we could have a do-over. We wish, in, in golfing terms, we wish we could have a mulligan. But there are no mulligans. We can't go back and undo our failures. But I tell you what the will of God is. Our, the will of God is that we move beyond our failures into the success that only Jesus can bring to our lives. Now, I want to drop this thought in your heart. Jesus restores failures. I am so glad that I can stand before you and on the authority of the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of the living God, say to you that Jesus restores failures. He does. But how does he do it? What's the process? Well, number one, I'm going to end with four steps in the process of restoration. Here it is. Number one, confess your sin. Confess your sin. Now, the Lord used a charcoal fire to get Peter's attention. And he uses charcoal fire-like experiences to uncover the sin in our life that we've been conveniently trying to hide. It could be a certain place. It could be a scene in a movie. It could be something that pops up in your social media. But the Lord used it to remind us of a failure we had in our lives that we've never dealt with. And I tell you, it is the will of God. If you're going to be restored, if you're going to move forward, 
past your failure, you have to confess your sin to God. There's no other way. In Proverbs 28, 13, the Bible says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. You can't move forward in your life until you deal with your failure. Failure, confess your sin, number one. Number two, love your Lord. The one issue that seemed to be the most important to Jesus in this point of restoration was the fact that Peter had to love him. Loving Jesus is central to the idea of moving past your failure. So he asked him, Peter, do, do you love me? Three times, do you love me? Someone asked you this morning, some of you are dealing with failure. Some of you, the accuser of the brethren, has blooded you and bruised you, and you are absolutely crushed because that failure you had several years ago or several days ago. You know what Jesus is asking you? Not only does he want you to confess your sin, but he wants to know, do you love him? Do you love Jesus? Oh, it's easy to talk the talk, right? But when it comes to genuine, authentic love, you got to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. So Jesus wants to know from you this morning the same thing he wanted to know from Peter. Do you love Jesus? You know what Jesus said when he was asked by a lawyer about the greatest commandment? Here's what he said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So I ask you this morning, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? Is that the way you love Jesus? Well, I tell you, that's his will for your life. And if you're ever going to crush it in this life, you're going to have to love Jesus with everything you got. And then here's the third step in the process. Serve your Lord. Serve your Lord. Do you know what the devil will tell you? God can never use you again. You're a failure. You blew it. God's going to put you on the back burner. You'll never amount to anything in the kingdom of God. And I'll tell you, the devil is a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning. Don't forget what Jesus told Peter, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. Jesus wanted to re-engage Peter in kingdom service. And I tell you that if you failed him, if you will confess your sin, if you will love your Lord, I'll tell you, you can serve your Lord and he will use you and give you places where you can glorify him in this life until you step into eternity. And then number four, the fourth step in the process. Follow your Lord. That's what Jesus said to him, right? Follow me, Peter. Present tense. Keep on following me. Keep on following me. Jesus expects us to be radically committed to him in this life. 
I want to ask you, how would you gauge your commitment to Jesus? How would you gauge your, the level of your following Jesus in this life? Let me tell you the story about John Bunyan. How many of you read, have read Pilgrim's Progress? Do you know in high school, back a million years ago, we had to read Pilgrim's Progress and we had to stand up and give a report to the class on it. John Bunyan, the great Protestant preacher, was approached by the local magistrates in England in 1660. And they threatened to imprison him unless he promised to quit preaching the gospel. He refused and declared to them that he would remain in prison, I quote, till the moss grew on his eyelids rather than fail to do what God had commanded him to do. So for 12 long years, he was imprisoned at the Bedford jail. That's what I call commitment. That's what I call following Jesus. So here's what God is asking you to do this morning. If you failed him, this is what you must do. Confess your sin, love your Lord, serve your Lord, follow your Lord. Peter walked away from that beach that day, fully restored by, by the risen Christ, fully restored. Why, it wouldn't be long, he would be there in Jerusalem, and he would be preaching to a crowd of people, preaching the gospel, and 3,000 souls would be saved. You, you say, did, did Jesus really restore Peter? I think he did. 3,000 souls were saved. And then there was that time that he and John were going to the temple and a, a lame man was there and he was begging for alms and, and Peter said to this lame man, silver and gold have we none, but what we have we give to you in the name of Jesus. Rise and be healed. And that man jumped up and he walked and he leapt his way into the temple glorifying God. Did Jesus really restore Peter? You better believe it. You say, that's Peter, Pastor, but what about me? I'm a nobody. There's no nobodies in the kingdom of God. If you're saved, you're a somebody. Because Jesus took you when you're nobody and made you a somebody. You're important to him. He loves you. He's got a plan for your life. You can walk away from this church today as fully restored as Peter was 2,000 years ago when he walked away from the beach. And I say that for this reason. Jesus restores failures. Would you bow your heads, please? Heavenly Father, in the powerful name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that you do restore failures. We thank you, Lord, that you never give up on us. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that through the Holy Spirit's ministry, you would touch men, women, boys, and girls who are a part of the kingdom this morning who have allowed Satan to heap onto their shoulders so much guilt 
that they can barely put one foot in front of the other spiritually. And I pray, Father, that you would set them free. Oh, God. I pray they'd come to this altar today and they would confess their sin to you. I, I pray, Lord, that they would, they would ask you to restore their love for you and to let it go at a level that they've never experienced before. And, and Lord, I pray that they would commit that they would serve you for the rest of their lives and that they would follow you forever. Oh, God, let this be a moment of victory. And, Lord, I pray for those within the sound of my voice who have never repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus. And, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you went to the cross of Calvary and you died for their sins. And you were raised from the dead. And you are alive and I know, Lord, that if they confess their sin to you, if they turn from their sin and, and receive you as their personal Savior, and Lord, that you will forgive them, that you will change their lives, that you will give them a new hope and a, a new desires and, and a new life, Lord, I pray, oh God, that today would be a day of salvation within the four walls of this church. Lord, we love you, and we know that you are the one answer that we need in our lives. May your will be done, in Jesus' name.